Continuing our verse-by-verse, uh, verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Romans, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do verses 8 through 14 today. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray for your spirit to teach, and we would listen, help us to understand, and not just hear it, but apply it and to live it in all that we say and do in your name. Amen. Now, in verses 8 through 10 here of Romans 13, you're going to see this repetition. The word love is repeated five times in verses 8 through 10. Now, we have to understand when we talk about love this morning, because this is what we're talking about. The whole subject is about love. What are we actually talking about? See, you've heard me mention this before, that in the English language, we only have this really one word for love. And the example I've always used is, you know, I love my wife, I love my dog, and I love Chicken McNuggets. It sounds like I love them all equally. Hopefully there's a different layer of love there and a different hierarchy of love. Well, in the New Testament written in Greek, they have different words for love. They have a word for love that's a brotherly love. They have a word for love that's a physical love. But they have this word here, it's called agape, which is the highest form of love. A self-sacrificing love. This is not romantic love. This is not physical love. This is a love from God, and it can only be understood when you know God's love. And this is the love that we're called to have for each other as the body of Christ and for others. Is the self-sacrificing love from God that can only be understood when we know God's love ourselves. It's the highest form of love, agape. So as we read through this here and we see the word love mentioned five times, keep that in the back of your mind. This is the type of love that God is asking of us. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, you should not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Very simply put is this, that if you love one another, you don't need to worry about the rules of you do not steal, you do not commit murder, not commit adultery. You have such a love for somebody that those thoughts don't even cross your mind. Why would I want to do that to my neighbor, to my friends, my brothers and sisters in the Lord or anybody? It's just love. Galatians says this in Galatians 5.14. For the, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when they came and asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment, you remember what he said? He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, the whole law and prophets hang on that idea of loving God and loving your neighbor. You know, Jewish tradition has there are about 613 rules and regulations in the Old Testament law. And Jesus said, hey, I can sum this up pretty simply. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what we're supposed to do. It's this idea of love. And God says, let me set the example for you when it comes to that. Because love is difficult. It really is. I've come to the conclusion in my years of walking with the Lord that God always allows one unlovable person into your life. Just to, honestly, to train you and to teach you, it is. And once you learn how to love that unlovable person, He just brings another unlovable person right into your life. Think about this. Jesus walked this world for 33 years. God in the form of man. And he had to put up with a lot. What an example that he set. And it's difficult. You know, one of the things I always talk about in premarital counseling is I always tell everybody, okay, before your husband and wife, before you're even engaged, you have to remember your brother and sister in Christ. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, you're called to love one another. And God never likes to see his kids fighting. And I also remind them in premarital counseling, remember, you're a sinner marrying another sinner. And you're choosing to live together in this house now, hopefully for the rest of your life. Two sinners trying to have a perfect marriage. 
It's tough. That's why the foundation has to be love. It has to be. You know, that's why I like taking 1 Corinthians 13, and I don't remember where I first heard this, but you take the passage in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, love is patient, love is kind, love keeps no record of wrongs, etc. And you take out the word love and you put your name in there. And how does it flow? You know, love is patient, love is kind, love keeps no record of wrongs. Okay, James is patient, James is kind, James keeps no record of wrongs. And it really is a test to say, is that me? Am I really loving the way I'm supposed to love? Do I have this agape love, this self-sacrificing highest form of love? Have I understood that love from God? Am I now passing that love out to other people and all that I do and all that I say? See, the way God chose to describe himself is love. If you're a note taker there in the bulletin, you can write this down. 1 John 4, 8. 1 John 4, 8. It's very simple. God is love. God is love. Now think about this. If you would go up to the non-believing world and ask them this question, God is blank. Would the non-believing world fill in that blank with God is love? That's how God wants to be known as. Isn't that fascinating? He wants to be known as love. That's what he says he is. God is love. But yet, that is not coming across to the dying, unbelieving world that God is love. Well, we shouldn't expect that of non-believers, right? They haven't been touched by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Okay, but what happens if we go up to the church, the body of Christ, and say, fill in the blank? God is blank. Would we hear love? I think sometimes what we'd hear is God is unfair. God is confusing. Now, maybe some would say God is grace, God is mercy, God is love. I hope they would. But it's fascinating that God wants to be known as love. But that's not what he's known for. And we as the church, we're more known for what we stand against than what we stand for. And don't get me wrong, we're supposed to take a moral stand on issues. That's biblical. But we're also supposed to be representing God's love to this dying world and also to the body of Christ, this agape love, because God is love. Since God is love, how did he show it to us? If you're a note taker, the next verse, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The most loving thing he could do is while we were still sinners is still die for us. He didn't ask us to get cleaned up first. He didn't ask us to get it figured out. He didn't say, you know what, get your life in order, then show up at the cross. While we were still sinners, he died for us. I was just talking to a gal a couple weeks ago, and this subject came up, and and we were talking about having a real relationship with Christ, a real relationship with Christ. And she said, you know what, once I get some of these things in my life figured up, cleaned up, I'd really like to get back into church. It's like, oh, man, it's still out there. This idea that there's something we can do to make God love us more. There's something we can do to get us access to salvation. Where God is making it abundantly clear, I am love. And while you're still a sinner, I still died on the cross for your sins. So since we have been so touched by God's love, we're supposed to take that agape love and now impact others with it. Now, how do we do that? Can you go with me to 1 John 4? 1 John 4. We have been so touched by the love of God that now that love impacts us and we will go impact others with it. First John chapter 4. I told you that in Romans 8 through 10, love is mentioned five times in just a few short verses. Well, we're going to read verses 7 through 21 here of 1 John 4. And in the span of what, about 15 verses, the word love or its variance is used 27 times. 27 times. That means God is trying to get a point across here. 
What's the point he's trying to get across? Let's see. Verse 7. 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. For he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. And sent his Son to be the propitiation, fancy word for appeasement, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is how God wants to be known as, that God is love. Look at verse 8. God is love. So we've established the fact that God is love. And the way God showed his love to us, verse 9, is that Jesus came down and died on the cross for our sins. The only way we can understand the concept of love is through the lens of Christ. That's the only way. Any other type of love you try to talk about or compare it to will ultimately fail. I love my boys. I love them. I would do anything for them. But there are still times where I lose my patience There's still times where I raise my voice. There's still times where I say or do things I shouldn't do. If they're judging their idea of love off that, what they're going to see is, hey, as long as I love 90% of the time, I'm doing pretty good. That's why God says the definition of love, the example of love, has to be God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. It has to be. That's the only example, that's the only symbolism of love that never fails. Never fails. So often we judge our definition of love based on our relationships with others. If you've constantly been in and out of relationships and people throw around the L word all the time, I love you, I love you, and you're basing your definition of love on that, you're going to get a really strange definition of love. I don't know how some of you guys are raised. You may have been raised in the most dysfunctional of dysfunctional homes. So if you thought that was love, you're going to have a strange definition of love. We have to get back to the biblical definition of love. What is agape love, the highest form of love? Verses 7 through 11 lay down that theology of this. It's a love that God has for us. He is love, and it's represented in Christ coming down for us. That's the foundation. What happens next? Verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected in us. Now this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the father has sent the son as savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we know, and excuse me, we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and he abides in love, abides in God and God in him. First point, God is love. Second point, he shows it by sending Jesus down to die on the cross for us. The next point, how do we know this? Is because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Now just think about this. This gets thrown around so often, I think we kind of lose the purpose and point of this. God has chosen to live inside of you. He has chosen to live inside. Now to you, that doesn't sound that bad. Because we're used to us. Now imagine it from God's perspective. Holy, perfect God. God who created the world in six days has chosen to come down and take up residence in the hearts of man in the form of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely amazing that God would want to be with us and that close to us all the time. Jesus said before he left, he goes, it's good that I am leaving because I'm going to send you the helper, the Holy Spirit, the comforter. So that way I'm always with you. Always with you. If you ever get into one of those little modes, no one loves me, no one likes me, I don't have a purpose, no one cares about me, 
God cares enough about you to say, I want to take up residence in your heart. I want your body to become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty loving thing. For God to be willing to do that, it's kind of amazing. He just loves you that much. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to live with you. He wants to be in you. And there's nothing you could do to make him love you more. He just wants to be around you. My youngest, Tyrus, he's three. His favorite thing to do right now is play farming. So what he does is he goes and gets out all his tractors, all his animals, all his everything, and he sets it up on Donamite's bed. So he sets up the whole farm scene, comes in, living room, grabs me off the couch and says, Dad, let's go do farming. Okay, so we go do farming. Now, here's the problem. He's a three-year-old. Now, we have this little phrase that we like to use that the President of the United States is the most powerful man in the world. I've come to the conclusion three-year-olds are the most powerful people in the world. They just have power, and we give it to them. So I go play farming with them. Now, here's the deal. I don't get to choose the tractor. I am. I don't get to choose the animals I want to be. I don't even get to choose the farmer. I don't get to choose anything. So he tells me what tractor I am, and he always gives me the junkiest tractors. And my tractor always gets stuck in the mud. It always does. He always tells me my tractor's stuck in the mud, and he has to send his tractor to come get my tractor out in the mud. So I'm trying to farm, you know, and all of a sudden I'm in the mud. I don't know what type of farmer I am, but I'm always in the mud, and he has to come rescue me. And so I thought, okay, this is how the game is played. So I would say, oh, I'm stuck in the mud. Nope, I'm only stuck in the mud if he wants me to be stuck in the mud. I only can be rescued if he wants me to be rescued, and he only will rescue me if he'll send Bob the Builder. So I'll say, send Bob the Builder. Nope, Bob the Builder's busy. So sometimes we just sit there, and I'm just stuck in the mud the whole time. My point is this. I'm 38 years old. Why am I doing this? I just love him. I just want to be around him. So I'll stay on the bed and be stuck in the mud until I'm free. I'll be the tractor he tells me to be. And I look at that and I'm thinking, you know what? He just wants to spend time with me. So I'm going to spend time with him. Sometimes maybe I don't get the most fun, the most enjoyment out of it. But I just want to be around my son. God chose to be around us. He just wants to be around you. He does. He just wants to communicate with you through prayer, through worship, through the word. He just wants you. And he wants you so much, he says, I will come put my Holy Spirit inside of you. Boy, that's love. So we understand that God is love. We understand that through Christ. We understand that through the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Okay, what do we do with this now? Verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. Therefore, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love, complete love, casts out fear. If God loves me enough to send Christ down to die for my sins, if God loves me enough to have the Holy Spirit take up residence in my heart, that's a complete love. I don't have to walk in fear. I don't have to walk in the fear of what that diagnosis could be. I don't have to walk in the fear of finances. I don't have to walk in worry or anxiety. I don't have to walk in any of those things. Because if God loved me enough to send me Jesus, and if God loved me enough to have the Holy Spirit live inside of my heart, what item in this world should make me afraid? See, but we allow the cares of this world to grab onto us and to bring us down. And it distracts us off this perfect, complete love that God has for us. And so, therefore, we're no longer walking in love. But we're walking in, what if about this? What if about that? And we lose our focus. 
Well, how do we take this love and apply it then? Verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. See, this is what happens. We get the theology of that God is love, verses 7 through 11. We get the idea that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's love, verses 7 through 11. We got that, okay? So we're up to verse 11. We get the idea that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, verses 12 through 16. Okay, I got that. But then we stop at verse 16. So then when the world hits us, all of a sudden this perfect love is no longer good enough. And we're fearful, we're scared, we're worried. And so what happens then is we don't get past verse 16. Okay, let's say we get past verse 16, though. I get the concept of perfect love, and God loves me so much, and if he has done this, he'll always meet my needs. So now I'm up to verse 19. Okay? Can we get verses 20 and 21? Now I take that love that God has for me, and I apply it to other people. That's where it gets really difficult. That's where it gets really tough. We can get to verse 16... Maybe we can get to verse 19, but verses 20 and 21, loving my brethren, that's tough. It amazes me how often I hear words like hate. I hate them. Or this phrase that has become such a part of our vernacular in our society, that phrase of of go to hell. Do you really realize what we're saying when we say that about somebody? I mean, that's the most awful thing you could tell somebody. Is that where where I want you to spend all of eternity? See, and this is what God is trying to tell us. He says, listen, verse 20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Love, agape, self-sacrificing. Not romantic, not physical. A love from God, and we can only understand it when you know God's love. See, when you know God's love and you realize how much God has loved you and how much God has forgiven you and how much God has been with you, then I can love others. Because I've been so touched by God's love, I can now use that to impact others. That's the goal. That's what we're trying to get to. Boy, how do we do that? Well, we look at the example of Jesus. You don't need to turn there, but if you're a note taker, write this verse down. Ephesians 5. 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Therefore, be imitators of God. See, I'm supposed to be an imitator of God. Can you, can you imagine that if someone would come up to you and they would say, hey, what, what do you think of this person? The greatest compliment you give them, they're an imitator of God. They are such a picture of God in what they do. They're imitating God. What a compliment that we're like the Lord in all we do and all we say and how we act. And that's why it's so important for us to be a picture of Jesus because sometimes the only picture of Christ people see is our lives at work, at home, or at school. That's why Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ Jesus. That's a pretty powerful statement. Because any of you that once again that have children, you know your kids are going to grow up, and who are they going to imitate? You. That's what they're going to be around. That's what they're going to see. It, it fascinates me. When we're sitting at the table and, and we're praying before a meal, you know, we have the boys take turns and we, differ, and we pray. It just started hitting me recently how the older boys, they all pray exactly like me. 
I am so annoyed with hearing myself pray with somebody else. For you that have been coming out here since I've been out here, I just want to apologize to you. I never knew how annoying I was when I prayed. For 20 years, you've heard me pray like that. They pray just like I pray. They're imitating Dad because that's what they see. We're supposed to be imitating our Heavenly Father because that's what we see. And then so as we imitate God, verse 1, verse 2 of Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us. We now use the example of Jesus. So imitate God and walk like Jesus walked. Okay, well, how did Jesus walk? Let's find out. John 13, please. John 13. We read in Romans 13 about the law and love and how the law was fulfilled in love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Galatians says the law is fulfilled in one word there, love. Jesus said the whole law hangs on this concept of love. God is love, 1 John 4. Romans 5, he demonstrated his love in dying for us while we were still sinners. Since we have been touched by God's love, we use that to impact others. 1 John 4 tells us to do this, shows us. Then Ephesians 5 tells us this is the example to do, the example of Jesus. Well, what did Jesus say? John 13 Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. He goes, I want you to love people. Verse 35, people are going to know you're following Christ by your love. Think about that. Jesus said, people are going to know that you are following me by the way you show love to people. That's fascinating. See, a lot of times... When we think of how are people going to know I'm a Christian, well, it's by my Bible that I carry, it's by my bumper sticker on my car, it's by the shirts that I wear. Jesus said, no, it's by your love. By you living with people, working with people, going to school with people, they will see the love of Christ in you and they will say there's something different about you. Because it's your actions, it's your actions that what you do show your love. And Jesus said, people will know that you're following me because your life will be so completely changed and touched by what I have done in your life that now that will go and impact others. But what example did he give for us? Well, this is where we just backtrack now. Stay in the same chapter. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to him, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. 
See, he set the example, washing feet. Lowest job you could have as a servant back during Bible times. Think about this. These guys, these big men, they're wearing these open-toed sandals. Their feet are completely disgusting and dirty. What would happen is you'd walk into a house, and what the servant would do is the lowest of the low would come and wash your feet. Don't overlook this. This is God who created the world in six days on his hands and knees washing people's feet. He says, that's the example I have given you. There is nothing below you when it comes to serving the Lord. Nothing. That's the example he said that I love so much. I am giving you this example. So that way later on in John 13, when he says that this example I've given you, that you love one another and you'll know you're my disciples by my love, by your love, he says, I've showed you this. I have done this. That's tough. And I think it gets tougher and tougher as time goes on. Because according to Matthew 24, it says in the Bible that in the end times, the love of many will grow cold. That word love, once again, is agape. And do we not see that as a society? As we get closer to the end, the love has grown cold. Love for God has grown cold. Love for fellow man has grown cold. It gets harder and harder and harder. Because the world gets tougher and the skin gets thicker. And this concept of being loving and showing the love of Christ, well, that just won't cut it anymore, folks. Boy, the love of many has grown cold. We need to make sure that no matter what's happening in the world, we still have our eyes on the focus on who Jesus Christ is. That's why now, coming back to Romans 13, verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That's what we were talking about. How do we do this now? Verse 11, and do this, this is how you do it, and do this, how do you love, knowing the time that is now, is high, excuse me, knowing the time that now is at high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. He says in verse 11, now's the time to do something. Wake up. Boy, I tell you, we've become spiritually asleep, haven't we? You know, our walk with Christ is more like a sleepwalk with Christ. We're very lethargic. And that's why Paul is saying here through the Spirit, wake up. Why? For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now you can take that a couple different ways. One way is now your salvation is nearer, you're growing deeper in your walk with Christ, so therefore you're understanding and grasping salvation better than you ever have. Or some people take it as your salvation is nearer, as how's this for a fun thought? Every moment you're one day closer to death. <laughs> your salvation is nearer. Your time of work on this planet is coming to an end. You're getting close to the end, so therefore wake up. Realize what's going on. Verse 12, the night is gone. We're no longer in the night. It's day. It's time to work. Cast off that darkness, that night. Get the armor on. Walk properly. Put on Jesus. Verse 14, you've heard me share that story so many times, and I love it, that idea of putting on Christ. That you're not capable. I'm not capable of doing these things. You have good days. We have bad days. We're struggling. So sometimes it's difficult to love and to show grace and to show mercy and to say, Lord, I put the kingdom first because sometimes James doesn't want to do that. So I need to put on Jesus. So when I put on Jesus, it's no longer me doing it. It's Christ working through us. Agape love. So there are going to be times where, you know what? You don't want to love the unlovable. 
There are going to be times where you don't want to take the high ground. There are going to be times where you're going to want to get down in the pig slop like the world and say, if you want to have at it, let's just have at it. Okay, put on Jesus. That phrase put on means to literally change your clothes. You're going to put on Jesus Christ because we're not capable of doing these type of things and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. See, verse 11 is telling us, wake up. We're spiritually asleep. We're lethargic. Wake up. Verse 12 is telling us, change your clothes. Get your armor on. It's a battle out there, people. We have forgotten that, haven't we? Every day it's a battle. So often we get into this little rut of life, get up, go to work, come home, repeat the same thing. Get up, go to work, come home, make enough money, pay the bills, and hopefully find some joy and fulfillment someplace along the road. It's a battle. And that's why God tells us here to put our armor on. Let us put on the armor of light, verse 12. If you want a little bit further study, I encourage you to go to Ephesians 6 for devotions tonight and read about the armor of God. Because understand the battle that you're in. It is a constant battle. I'm not going to go through the whole armor of God, but just listen to this out of Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Boy, how are we supposed to survive in this world without the armor of God? We can't do it. We forget we're in a battle. We forget that. You know, we just had a baptism last Sunday, and one of the things that we always say, for those that are getting baptized, they're putting a huge bullseye on their back because they're taking a public stand for the Lord, confessing Christ. And as they do that, it's like they're drawing attention to themselves, saying, here I am, shoot a fiery dart at me, Satan. We've got to put the armor on. Got to put the arm. You know, I used to use this example. I used to say before you get up out of bed in the morning, make sure you pray over that. You get the armor on. You get ready for, for bed. And I start realizing, just don't even take the armor off at night. <laughs> just sleep in the armor all the time. But we as believers, once again, forget we're in the battle. And so what happens is people come in and they want to talk or for counseling. And they're discouraged. They're depressed. They're worked up. They forgot they're in a battle. They're going to get shot at. You know, I'm a student of history. I enjoy reading about history, and I've shared this story with you once before, but it bears repeating. It works in well right here. Um, you know, it was a story about the invasion on D-Day. And what happened was there was a lot of these troops that were in the invasion on D-Day. They were new troops. They'd never been in combat before. They really did not fully understand what they were getting into. And the one guy had this great idea is that uh, when they landed on the beach on Normandy, that he sent his friend out with a camera. And he says, okay, I want you to go out first, turn around. I'm going to give you a couple bucks, take a picture of me as I'm coming off the landing craft as I'm storming the beach. And this guy said that he was going to then get the picture, get developed, send it home. Here I am storming the beaches on D-Day. So they landed. His friend runs out with the camera, turns around and takes a picture of him. And his friend immediately gets shot and killed. And the man then coming off the landing craft said, I realized at that time this is not what I thought it was. And it was a battle. And he says it was a wake-up call. He survived. But his friend that he gave a couple bucks to to take a picture of him going into combat so he could send home was killed. And I just wonder how often do we forget that as believers? It's, it's a battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. I mean, it's a battle for your kids. That's why you're fasting and praying for them. It's a battle for the gospel to go out. That's why we fast and pray and let the Spirit lead. It's a battle to stay pure in an impure world. 
And that's why we need the armor. That's why we need to understand the armor. That's why we need to be in prayer and in fasting and in the spirit because it is a battle. It's a constant battle. So we need to wake up because we're spiritually asleep sometimes. Change our clothes. Get the armor on. Stay clean. Let us not walk. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, lewdness, lust, not in strife and envy. Okay, how do I stay clean? That's impossible for me. The answer is found in verse 14, by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. I've got two more passages I want to share with you, and one of them is a story. Can you go with me to 2 Samuel 13? What happens when we make provision for the flesh? What happens when we fulfill those fleshly desires and we get everything we want? Well, first off, I don't think you could ever fulfill the flesh. Look at Solomon. Hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines. There's always more. The flesh is this never-ending hole you will never fully be able to satisfy and fulfill. And what I've noticed this is this. When you do fulfill the flesh, you have that brief moment of fleshly fun and happiness followed by conviction through the Holy Spirit and condemnation from Satan. And that brief moment of what we deem fun, and I use that word lightly, is followed by, once again, conviction, condemnation, shame, guilt. That's awful. Really think about that. Fulfilling the flesh, is it really going to be worth it? Second Samuel 13, here's a story of someone who got what he wanted. Verse 1, After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Ammon, the son of David, loved her. Now, you have to remember, David had multiple wives, so he had a lot of these half-brothers, half-sisters. So what you have here is you have Ammon and you have Tamar. They're the main characters. So both of them are a son or daughter of David, and Ammon likes Tamar. Verse 2, Ammon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Ammon to do anything to her. But Ammon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you the king's son becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. Then Amon laid down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Ammon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Ammon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. She took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Ammon said, Have everyone go out for me. And they all went out from him. Then Ammon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Ammon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel, and do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? As for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Ammon hated her exceedingly. So that the hatred with which he had hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Ammon said to her, Arise, be gone. That is a picture of the flesh right there. You plan out the sin. You want the sin. You're so sick for the sin. And you just have to have it. And so you finally get the sin. You fulfill that lust, that fleshly desire. And what happens, verse 15? The hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love. And he says, Get out of here. Shame. 
guilt, Holy Spirit conviction, condemnation from Satan. The flesh is never worth it. It's never worth it. So Amon has this brief moment of fleshly fun. It's never, ever worth it. Absalom ends up coming back later and killing him. Point is this. Where that verse says, make no provision for the flesh, that's a pretty powerful verse. We have to stop and ask ourselves, am I making provision for the flesh? Am I allowing these fleshly things to come in and I am allowing it to happen because it is a little bit of fun? That's never worth it. Paul told us in Corinthians that these Old Testament stories are given to us as an example. It's either an example of what to do, Daniel, or it's an example of what not to do, Ammon. And basically Paul is saying, well, you learn from these examples. The flesh is never worth it. It will always come back to bite you more than you can ever imagine. What I want to finish with is this. Can you go to 1 Thessalonians 5, please? 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 does a nice sum up of what we just finished with there in Romans. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. We're not of the darkness. We're not of that darkness of sin. We are called out of that. We're sons of light. Verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Idea of being sober, being serious, being self-controlled, being diligent in this. Let's not walk. Let's not have a Christian walk that's a sleepwalk. Let's be active for the Lord and what He has called us to do. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. This has got everything in it. Paul is telling the church of Thessalonica, wake up. You're sons of light. There's a difference in what we are called to do. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. It's not something I can do on my own. I can't work for this. I can't obtain this. That's why Paul said I need to put on Jesus Christ. Because I can't do this. But as a son of light, he will empower us to do this. Let us not sleep. Let us be awake. Let us no longer be lethargic in our walks. And let's realize we need that breastplate of faith and love, that helmet of hope of salvation. We need that armor on. It's a battle. And it's a battle that we have a tendency to forget that we're in. Then all of a sudden when we get hit, it's a wake-up call. Where the Lord is saying, hey, don't fall asleep on this. Stay focused. Do what I've called you to do. Keep the armor on and realize you're in a battle. Make no provision for the flesh. Put on Jesus Christ and let him rule and guide you in all ways. Kathy and Daniel, if you guys want to come up for the final song, let's pray this into our lives.